Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Johnny, 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 whoops, Johnny, whoops, Johnny, how you doing? I think this particular episode deserves that sort of fanfare opening. That's about all we can afford. It's a big big episode. It's the big one. It's uh, Michael Callahan and Teller. You say it, not me. You did it. You say it. Indeed, very exciting interview with none other than Teller and Michael Callahan. Uh, Maybe in that order, but not really. Michael Callahan, terrific guy. Yes. Teller is Teller. For the love of Pete, he is amazing on stage. And it I really think this may have been the first time I ever heard the man speak. So uh, thrilling on so many levels for me, the magic geek. Yeah, I've heard him uh, be interviewed before, so I was used to that. But as I think Michael Callahan says, when he talks, you listen because he doesn't talk. And so when he does say something, you you tend to listen. So, you know, with our podcast, there's always that question of which comes first. Do we do the story first? Do we do the interview first? Sometimes the story ties into something we're talking to the guest about. So you want to put the story first so that it, right. you know. And sometimes there's not a huge connection. So the interview goes first. But I suspect that the vast majority of folks tuning into this episode are not simply tuning in for the story. Well, there's no scientific proof of that, but I concur. You're right. Yes. So when we uh, got them both on Zoom, I did sort of an introduction to what we were going to talk about. I said, you know, what our conversation today is about is the important relationship between the mentor and the mentee. That's where it started. It didn't uh, It didn't stay there for long, though. One thing I'm sure to say the introduction, but I'm going to say it here again now for our listeners. The, the idea behind this conversation is to look at the value and importance of mentorship, both for the mentor and the mentee. Ah, it's- stop. Stop right there. Stop right there. The word mentee needs to be eliminated from our vocabulary. Does it really? Yes, it, yes, it does. Men, mentor mentor was a was a character in the Odyssey. He's an old family friend of, of Odysseus's family. Odysseus entrusted his son, Telemachus, to mentor's uh, care and instruction. So if you want to call somebody uh, the, the, the corresponding thing, uh, to mentor, the, that is the, the person who is being mentored, you can refer to that person as a Telemachus. <laughs> I'm writing this down. Please do. A Telemachus? It is absolutely it is absolutely offensive to me as an old as an old Latinist to hear the number of times that you that I hear mentee, which just makes me it, it makes me think of some kind of beverage, you know. Uh, I, 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 I won't have four mentees and a fried chicken, please. Yes, I, I, I won't I won't have it. It sounds like a cocktail. All right. Please forgive me. I had no idea that I would able to be able to offend within my first two sentences. Yes, yes. Uh, that's that's because I'm particularly offendable on that particular <laughs> one point. The rest of the time, I'm I'm just a golden, easygoing guy. But comes comes to misuse of classical terms. I won't. I won't have it. Well, then I will. I will just so, go so far as to say this is a conversation about mentors and the people they mentor. Yeah, uh, and it's not meant to be a blueprint for how to get Teller to be your mentor. Oh, good. <laughs> if that's the listener's idea, disabuse yourself of that right now. Thank Absolutely. you both for being here. Teller, you've been so kind to me with my Eli Marks books and letting me use that quote for the Linking Rings book. Michael, I got to see you twice at Sunday Night Magic. Uh, and both times you did really, uh, they were works in progress, but they were really, really good works in progress. 
Uh, and as I mentioned to you before, when I saw them and I told you, I said, you you think like Penn and Teller. And you said that is uh, the highest praise. So to have you both together to talk about how your relationship came together and how it works and how you both benefit from it, I think is really important for our podcast because we've talked to Jim, I think, 60 magicians so far, somewhere in that nape of the neck. Yeah. And the concept of uh, having a mentor has come up several times. I know when we talked to John Carney, uh, he talked a lot about Fawcett Ross and about Di Vernon, Steve Spill, all Steve Spill talked about was Di Vernon and how he helped him. Uh, Suzanne has talked to us about that. Uh, Tyler Erickson talked to us about that. In fact, we just had Bill Arnold on and Bill, who is not really a podcast guy, came on. One of the reasons he wanted to come on was to talk about the two mentors who were so very important to him. So it's something we've touched on, but we've never had the chance to have both people in the room at the same time to talk about what it meant to them. So with that in mind, let me just jump in and start with you, Michael. What was your situation when you reached out to Teller for the first time? Yeah, quickly, thank you so much for having me, John, and what an absolute honor. And I haven't actually said hi to Teller yet on air. So hi, Teller, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. I'm back from the dead. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh and I don't know if it'll make the final edit, but I absolutely adore that we managed to uh, prompt Teller to get a a quintessential moment out of him there with regarding to the mentor-mentee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, that that's the friend I know, so you guys can turn <laughs> off the video now. Um, and and I'm and I'm very honored to be here, and I hope to be able to share, not just give you answers, but and talk about mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. Uh, not just talk about it, um, but with the understanding that I've been, I've been placed in this amazing position where ninety nine percent of the time that Teller and I have spent together has been one on one, and he has been very generous with both my family, my wife, and my daughters. And we have had other people around, but in many ways, I feel like I feel like a living secret notebook. And it's just such an honor to be able to share a little bit of my perspective as to uh, who I see him to be, which is quite honestly um, the best magician of the generation. And I would make the case the last hundred years. Uh, I know that I have a bit of a bias on that, but I would make that argument in good case. So when I I got into magic, I got into magic because of seeing Penn and Teller. I grew up in a small town, three hours from Denver, five hours from Omaha. And my only access point was my public library as far as a few books. And I had a lot of interests and magic was always one of them and I would cycle through it. But unlike Teller, who, who magic was a, a constant touchstone in his childhood, for me, it was something that I just bounced off of occasionally. I didn't have a lot of access to on a very high level, which was why his book, Cruel Tricks, uh, Cruel Tricks for Dear Friends was so important because I knew that I was looking, even though it was available to me through B. Dalton books at the mall when I would get to get be taken up to go school shopping in the fall and I, I brought it home, I knew I was looking at something I had never seen in any of the magic books I had found in my libraries, whether it was the Scarney book or the Blackstone book or any of those those generally available books. And and so here was this here was this insight into the cutting edge of culture, obviously written by two very smart people. It was magic, which I loved, and I had never seen magic in a way that it had removed all of the negative cliches that I had grown up understanding magic to me. I mean, I remember seeing Copperfield vanish 
the Statue of Liberty on on television, and and it was neat. We watched it, but it didn't it didn't move me. Um, and so years later, I was in college, and I hadn't done a magic trick in years, and I was just struggling away in engineering school. And Penn and Teller were going to play in Fort Collins. I heard it on the radio, and so on a whim, uh, I I got a hold of my my girlfriend, my wife now, and. And I said, I think we should try to go get tickets up there. And so we all the, it was completely sold out. So our only chance was to go and try to get season ticket holder releases. They would release the people who, who hadn't called in to claim them. So we ended up in the mezzanine, right in the middle of the theater. And my folks had done a good job of making sure I had seen Les Mis. Um, amazingly, they had taken me to me uh, to even Tron on ice. So my my cultural <laughs> sensibilities were quite broad. Uh, and when we saw the Penn and Teller show, I had never seen anything like it. I hadn't felt those feelings. I hadn't, I had never laughed that hard. I, I was, it was, I'd seen a lot of stuff, but nothing had changed my life and that changed my life. And I just knew I wanted to do this in some way, not knowing what that meant, where to begin. And so that was, that was like 1995-ish. And then just to put a timeline on this, Teller and I met, I approached him with the intention of saying hello in 2012. So we're talking quite a a few many years later. I had developed a show that at that point was allowing me to work professionally. Um, I had done three years in the comedy clubs, not expecting to become a comic. Uh, So when I was getting paid to do comedy, that surprised me. But I was dovetailing what I was learning in the comedy clubs, pairing that with these four mentalism tricks that I had gotten very good at, uh, including I I do think that my out of this world is one of the best ones out there. so I dovetailed these four mentalism tricks in with what I was what I was building in the comedy clubs, and I had a working hour, and I met him. Uh, I had made a, I had made something that I thought I could sell on the market, and I worked very hard on the marketing. And my wife and I waited after the show because we knew they would come out because they always come out because if they are nothing, they are consistent and dedicated. And so we waited and we waited and it got to the point where we even saw Teller look over at us as though we could move forward and we didn't. We hung back and we hung back and we hung back. And finally, I, I walked up to him and I, I opened the market the way I packaged this little deck. I made a very elaborate die cut pop up version of the logo. And so I wanted to wow him. So I opened the little marketing thing and I, I had uh I said, this is this is an example of my work. It's largely inspired by the ideas you wrote about in your House of Mystery series with Todd Carr. And my and then I gave him the letter that accompanied it, which again was my my dear wife's idea. She said, you're never going to be able to say what you want to say to him in the moment. So why don't you write him a letter? So I wrote him that letter. It was about five or six paragraphs and I worked very hard on it. And I knew that even though I'd worked hard on it, there was going to be typos in there because uh, I am a typo machine and it cannot be defeated. And so uh, I walked, he was so kind as always. He was, he thanked me. He remembered that the, the water tank had a leak that night and <clears throat> he, he, he received my gift, said good night. And Aaron and I were walking down the hall and she said to me, uh, how do you feel? And I said, well, I feel a little bit silly. I mean, you know, I feel a little silly. It's a little silly, but I, I also know that he's going to read that letter and I know that he will have, he will have heard what I have to say. And so I'm really happy about that. And we were driving on the way home. We had the babysitter at home and we were driving. And I saw all of a sudden that I had a voicemail from a Las Vegas number. And I thought this can't be. And so I listened to the voicemail and it was Teller. And uh, so I called him right back and he picked up and he said, hello, Michael. And I said, hello, Teller. 
And he said, I suppose you're on your, I suppose you're driving home. And I said, I am, but I will happily turn around. <laughs> and he said, no, you don't have to, you don't have to turn around. I just wanted to check and see where you were at. I uh, said, I just read your, I read your letter and I thought I would give you a call. Um, and he, and he, and I said, uh, <laughs> I said, I tell you what, I'll email you tomorrow. And, and I is, said, is that the deck that he's holding up right now? Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh my gosh. You, you yeah, there it is. You can tell instantly from the way this is put together that this is this is being done by somebody who profoundly cares about what he does and is willing to go to any lengths to make it well, perfect. You know, wow. uh, it, 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 it really did quite blow me away and it's really <laughs> cleverly done. And I and I will and I we will we'll let Teller talk much more. I will get I will wrap up my intro here. So yeah, so the next day, so we hung up the phone, and my wife and I screamed in the car for an hour straight, heading down Highway 169 South. Uh, She and I were both such tremendous fans, and and we had followed them uh, wherever they had performed, and you know they they didn't know they were important to our lives, but they were very important to our lives as great artists are. And uh, the next day, I kept picking up my phone and looking, and then finally this email pops in. And it was from, from, it was from the magician teller. And he said, uh, thanks so much for the great gift, the kind note. I think we should be friends. And uh, I think we screamed for a minute again. And then, uh, and Amelia, I thought, I have no idea what that means. Like, what does that mean? We should be friends. Does this mean, what does, this is the most ellipsed friends on the, but I will, I'm up for anything, whatever that means. This is great. And so that was, I guess, gosh, 11 years ago. And uh, it's just been an absolute honor and a pleasure to uh, have him be a friend and and then and at times uh, step in as a mentor and say he's my mentor and say he's my friend. And it's it's been one of the great honors of my life. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what a great story that is. What a, what a fantastic, the chutzpah there. I appreciate that kind of uh, behavior, Michael, and uh, apparently so does Teller. Teller, do you remember your reaction to his letter and his trick? Do you get those kinds of things handed to you on a regular basis? Uh, I I'll often get, you know, get letters uh, handed to me or passed to me backstage. And they're usually, uh, they're not usually from magicians, they're usually from lay people who are just enthusiasts. And um, I try to respond as as best I can to pretty much all of them. And I, and I do, you know, that, that, that means sometimes just saying, um, hey, uh, give me a give me a photo. Let me let me autograph it and send it off to this person. Sometimes I don't get around to it. I'm, I confess because there's a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm a busy, busy guy. Yeah, this was quite an extraordinary calling card. I mean, you like you have to love magic props, right? If you're if you're in magic, you have to love magic props. And when you see one that's into which so much thought has gone and so much precision of execution has gone, you say, ah, this is a person to take seriously. And and that's exactly what I did. You know, it's, it's. it's it's always it's always having having more friends who are smart and good is always a good thing. So it doesn't. I I I have no. I have. I think I have. I think I have zero of the. Uh, uh, oh, I'm in show business, so I'm a big deal. I think there's that's just zero in me. There's no there's no portion of that. The closest I come to that is you know like if I'm at Disneyland and somebody comes up and says, "Can I get a picture with you?" I'll go sure, and that that sort of makes me feel like I'm a showbiz big big shot. 
Um, but I just, I don't have any of the, you know, there's never, I have never had a bodyguard. <laughs> I, I've never tried, I've never tried to, to keep hoi polloi. Note I say hoi polloi and not the hoi polloi, which is redundant. Mm. I don't keep, keep hoi polloi. Hoi polloi means the people. Hoi <laughs> is the, polloi is people. Hoi polloi. I don't, I don't try to keep hoi polloi away from me. It, um, <laughs> because there's too much, there's too much benefit. There's too much benefit to to having more friends. Um, you know, when when I when I go, I mean, for example, uh, you know, if I if 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 I'm in Leeds, England, I have a family there that that I've kept in touch with for some for some years, and they will they 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 are you know they'll say come have a meal with us, and when you're in Leeds, you want a family that's going to do that, right? What what else are you going to do in Leeds? Uh, so that's that's very nice. But it's also it's very very nice to have people in your acquaintance who are striving to do new ideas because we're striving to do new ideas all the time, and that's a um, and new ideas are when someone else's new idea, if, even if you're not copying it can be very inspiring. In fact, there's uh, Michael gave us one, one, one idea of his that we haven't yet used that, um, believe me, is still in the back of our minds with the lawnmower. Um, and uh, I, I would, you know, I, I, that's still, that's still a possibility for the future in, in some, some season when we're not already overburdened with card tricks. Um, uh, to, to follow up on that teller, I wanted to pitch to you that um, there's a, the, the price of an electric lawnmower has come down substantially since we since since you expressed interest in that yeah it's a it's a it's just a beautiful funny beautiful funny big idea um i i think we are all set for this season with 21 god help us new pieces for for fool us seven or eight of them are now in the show live and um it, it's it's a bit insane for our crew because our crew our, our crew comes in and says okay what's new today how do we rearrange the entire show and you oh. know uh, anyway, this is the, this is all skipping the the mentor question. I I don't I, the, the, apart from Michael, I haven't had a lot of people that I consider myself mentor to, except maybe Brian Brushwood, and he's 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 worth he's worth your talking to, because uh, Brian Brushwood came to our show when he was I I would I'll I'll make the guess sixteen with his mother, and they they came to the to the show and they made a joke to me afterwards. Um, they they said uh, his mother his mother said he he doesn't know it but um uh he's actually your bastard son <laughs> and uh and I, I went oh I have a bastard son that's wonderful uh and I talked with him a little bit more and just heard in his voice the absolute passion for being a performer and I began to correspond with him and if you look up you know Brian Brushwood's website. You'll see a ton of our correspondence, and we've kept it. What what thrills me about this is that I think that there are people who say, "I really, really like magic," but nobody could ever actually make a living that way. Mm. Well, you know, it depends on what kind of living you want. You know, it, it's if if you if you want a, a big paycheck tomorrow afternoon, good luck. But if you want to be like Penn and Teller. That is to say, living hand to mouth for ten years before anybody pays any attention to you at all, because you love what you're doing so much. 
then then they, then you got a chance, and and Brushwood just kept at it, and now he has this whole sort of little empire in Texas. That's uh, you know he has a re- recording studio, he does a podcast. Uh, his his magic has has gone from just just performance at colleges to other kinds of things. Um, it's he's a very interesting guy. But that's I, I, energy in human beings and intelligence in human beings and daring and originality in human beings, coupled with good manners, uh, always interests me. Good manners being key, I think, just about anywhere across the board. Yeah. You know, since we're talking about first times with people, uh, tell the first time I saw you and Penn live was at the State Theater in Minneapolis. I'd been sent there by my client, International Dairy Queen because they wanted to hire you guys to close out their annual meeting. And I believe someone along the line had said, well, you can see their show. And if it works in their schedule, they might add it to, they might do it, but they're only going to do their show. And so I went to the show and came back and the client said, are they good? And I said, they're fantastic. Well, are people like them? I said, well, they end the show naked, covered in blood. Are you okay with that? <laughs> As it turned out, they weren't okay with that. And I sort of knew they weren't okay with that. But it was fun being able to say it to them. Um, Michael, from your side, what form has the mentorship taken? How how does it work? And, and how do you how have you benefited? Uh, I will say right out of the, the gate, the very beginning, Teller had such an understanding of where he had such an empathetic understanding of what it must be like to be me and uh, in this position. And every time he's ever sensed that I was a little bit shell-shocked, he's always taken the wheel and stepped in. And that's been when we've been in person together over the phone. I still, when we talk on the phone, all, 11 years later, um, I pace for hours before and I will I will lose my breath. I'm so excited. And I just, I just run at him with endless banter and nervous giggles. And, and, uh, and and the only time I begged him, I've begged him to be more critical of my work and my thoughts. And the closest I've ever come to getting a rebuff was one time he just did have to say, I was, I just wouldn't stop talking. He said, I need you to stop talking. I'm thinking (laughs) that was the closest (laughs) I ever came to any kind of a rebuff. Um, but you know, he said to me right out of the gate, because I asked him, I said, you know, I don't know what this, I don't know what this means. I don't know what form this is going to take. And he said, well, we're going to take it slow. You know, neither of us are going anywhere. And we will email. And sometimes we will talk on the phone. And sometimes we will get together. And we're going to take it slow. And that's, and that's exactly what it's been. Uh, It has just been this unbelievable, unbelievably paced, um, relationship and and along the way i've been witness to uh, first off his professionalism uh he has always 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 answered every time i've called or emailed um and that just astounds me knowing how busy he is um he is speaking of the listening story he is such a sincere listener he will listen and he will think and then he will share the best of himself with you his ideas in the moment um God, he is so patient. Um, he, from that first email, letting me know, you know, this whole thing is a long haul. This isn't, this this doesn't happen in the next forty eight hours. Um, and so he's he's been so patient with me. Um, I've been I've 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 wanted to model. I've worked to model after him his ability to extend trust. Um, that's just been something that I've been in awe of in our in our 11 years is is the the opportunities and position he's put me in in a trusted position 
that I have, as he mentioned, the good manners, I've worked very hard and consciously not ever to abuse <laughs> or misstep. Um, and, and he's put me in some incredibly, incredibly big spots. And I'm, I'm so, I, I want to be as trusting as he is. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, as you can imagine, the first, I, I highly curated my first probably 12 months with him. I was very, very nervous to ever say that maybe I'd had a bad show, um, that maybe I wasn't feeling nothing but flowers and roses and bunnies about magic at the time. And so I was very, very, I curated, I did, I did put on my best face with him. And I, I remember the first time I was driving in an extended drive and I, and we were on the phone and, and I shared with him that I was frustrated and I was deeply frustrated and I was having feelings of inadequacy <laughs> and, uh, and it was one of the both longest and most important conversations in my life. And, and just his, his understanding, his empathy. I mean, I had come, I had said things in the past where like, you know, like, yeah, this didn't happen. He's like, Oh, you think that was bad? Listen to this. And nobody has better road <laughs> stories. Nobody has better showbiz stories than teller. So if, if you think you're going to tell a showbiz story, you know, understand you are the opening act. Um, but in this conversation, in this conversation, you know, he, he's just such a great human. And then that's why I was so excited about getting Alfred asked to do this is because I, I know when I'm talking, Teller's not talking and people want to hear Teller, but I hope people understand that my talking is me is Teller talking through me in this, in this experience that I, I just, he has always made time for me. There was a time when I, we, he had said that he would be able to meet up with me. I was in Las Vegas for one thing and, and I had let him know. And the man got off an airplane, fought his way to his office, met with me for an hour, drove me back to the hotel. And in doing so nearly missed his next meeting. None of that needed to happen, but he was so, so keen to honor his commitment to me. Um, again, just, where is that mentorship or is that friendship? It's both, you know, it is absolutely both. You can, we have two words for a reason. They both have their place, but so often when we're together, you don't know it's, it's just both. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think of you as a telemachus. <laughs> I, I, no, I really don't. I think, I, I think of you, I think of you as somebody who is at a different part of your career from where my from where I am right now and you're moving forward and you're moving forward in the struggling way that anybody who actually is good is ever going to do which is to have failure after failure after failure and then go oh yeah let's go this way so to that point teller i think that the benefit part of that question when i met him i had mentioned that i was doing a mentalism act and that was that was where I was only with him, only with him just being I knew him only through his work and through his writing. And uh, he very it might have been the night of I think it might have been the first conversation that night when he emailed me uh, the hour before his show. And and he said to me, I, you know, we, we just met, but I can tell that you care deeply enough magic. I don't think you should pigeonhole yourself as a mentalist. That was it. One sentence. So often when you get a chance to be with Teller, take listen to the sentence. Because he, so much, it will not be a paragraph. The thing that you need to come away with will be a perfectly crafted sentence. And so here I sit 11 years later, and I'm very proud to say, and I don't even know if he knows this, but uh, this summer, well, this this January, um, I, I was asked to headline a comedy club, not a magic show. I do a lot of private magic shows, but I was asked to headline a comedy club on the weekend in the heart of the season, the Minnesota comedy season, which is the dead of winter. 
And the booker knew full well that I was a magician. And I stood on that stage. I did 70 minutes of magic in a comedy club. Um, only because it, it only it needs it's a detail of the story is that it went very well. And the booker and the, the club owner was was thrilled and, and was saying, you need to be doing this in more comedy clubs. And and the important note though is is I was I was telling this to to my wife Erin is that we I we realized she came to Saturday night and she and we realized there was not a single thing that I said or did that I was saying or doing when I met him. And I had gone from mm-hmm. a mentalist who had built things to say in a comedy club, and I was now a magician who was compelling and getting the laughs and doing the work that you need to do to be entertaining on stage in that environment. And, and, you know, your, your work just creeps along at such a slow pace that it's hard to realize you're making progress at times. And for me, it was, it was one of those really nice mileposts where I realized, yeah, I mean, what, what changed? Well, I had this crazy thing where, where Teller and I, you know, he stepped into my life and I stepped into his. And, and I also want to add that as far as trying to understand that, I'm, I floated that to him one time. I was like, I don't get this. And he said, one sentence. <laughs> I said, one sentence. Sometimes the door opens, period. End of email. That was it. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I will never, like, I, that's enough for me. Like, that's that's exactly right. And so, you know, when we were, when I was thinking about having this conversation on this podcast, I'm like, I'm not going to try to explain some of this. I just need to tell stories so people can understand who and see him the way I see him and understand him the way I see him and know that uh, sometimes the door just opens, period. One sentence, pay attention. You know, it makes sense that someone who makes his living on stage not talking and that when he does talk, A, you should listen and B, every word's going to have uh, some meaning behind it. Well, I see, I get I get more, pre- I, more, more credit than I should, right? Because when I don't talk on stage, people start to think of me the way they would think of their pet, pet cat. So if their pet cat comes out with one single lucid complete sentence, it's like a miracle. <laughs> so right. Taylor, what have you gotten from your side of this this relationship? How does how do you benefit from it? Um, I uh, how can I say I I I enjoy you know you know how at, at a magic convention little groups of magicians will stay up all night together talking about stuff. And that that's just that's a that's a cauldron of ideas. That's a that's a place where where things where where your 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 new ideas get started. It's also just pleasurable. And also Michael is an amazing chef. <laughs> yeah. I have I have had some of the finest food of my life at his house. Uh uh I, believe me, you 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 I mean he's he's a multi-talented guy, which is also mm-hmm. extraordinary for magicians, right? Because mm-hmm. magicians usually the best they can do is their little card trick. Uh he's an actual professional painter of very high quality. Uh and that's uh, that's something I wonder. I wonder if that's if that's gonna feed into the the the, the performance sometime in the not too distant future. There there might be it seems like it's it's dying to come through somehow, and it's an angle that you know could be very rich. Uh, hi, so I guess my my answer is, what do you what do you get from having a friend that's interesting to talk to? That's what we get. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that your background in teaching might make you a little better of a mentor, just because you understand where a student is coming from? I wasn't a very good teacher. Um, so I, you know, and I, and I had no, I had no teaching education. 
So the only thing I could do really was identify the more interesting students and spend extra time with them. And and that that I did, you know, that I did. And I ended up making friends of students uh, subsequently, you know, that, that, that I, I'm still friends with today in, in some cases, not all cases. Um, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, there, there is a, certainly there's a theatrical aspect to teaching that has to do with knowing how to stage and express an idea so that it comes across. Um, and I'm sure that that, that, that informs my, my work, but I think it's more like my work would inform the teaching than the other way around, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly good at stripping stuff down and saying, what's the essence of this? And, putting things in sequence, you know, probably my best single quality as a, as a, as a, for want of a better word, composer of magic tricks is that I, I, I really do know a little bit about what to, how to hold back information and release it at the proper time. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that the, the, the unfolding of a story is very much about that. It's very much about saying, okay, what's the real picture here? Now, how can we make the discovery of that picture into a story? Yeah. And so that, that's that's something that's always that, that always pervades my work, but also should not necessarily pervade somebody else's work. I mean, when you're when you're looking at somebody else's work, you need to find out what they're up to. That what they're up to is what's important. It's what's wrong with so much of what's so-called criticism. You know, critics who write for newspapers about shows. They 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 write down what they would have wanted there, and then say, "Oh well, there's they did a lot of that and they didn't do a lot of that." Well, you know, that's not really what a critic does. A, a, a critic, critic is from the from the, the 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 root word that means to discern, to discern, to understand, to 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 to, to clarify. So real critics, real critics try to figure out what's going on and then articulate it. Um, and I think there, I, I may have a little bit of that in me. That's that's helpful to me when working even with actors, you know, because what you 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 hire an actor to do a role, you see the way you would do it yourself, but you know, but that's not pertinent. What you need to do is find out what the actor wants to do with that role and make that work into the the story. Yeah, can we talk just a little bit then, Teller, about personally? Uh, were there mentors in your life? Yes. Uh, that helped to shape your outlook on magic or life in general, I guess. Yes, yes there were. Um, well, there was there was this, several. Both of my parents are very important in this. Um, uh, I think m my mother, for her absolute frankness, uh, my father, for teaching me this, this is perhaps the biggest mentorship le lesson of anything I ever had in my life. And Michael knows this because I wrote about it. And when I did, all this will be yours. But um, my father was a commercial artist. You know, he did he did lettering designs for advertisements, and he didn't do very well. But he had one very good year. And during that year, he took us on a cross country trip, and he bought sixteen acres of wasteland in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And he said he said um, we should build a cabin on that wasteland. And I said, how do you do that? He said, I'll show you. And he sent away for books from the federal government about how to build a cabin, brought them in, read them with me. Then he said, how big do we want the cabin? 
And I said, I don't know. He said, well, we, we don't want to waste a lot of wood. Let's figure it out. So on our kitchen floor, we taped out a floor plan of the cabin. And we said, well, it has to be this high, at least for you to get in the door. And, you know, it should keep the, it should keep, we should have a ways, ways to close the, close the windows so that, uh, you know, when the, when the wind comes, we can protect ourselves. And then with a series of pieces of yellow paper, um, he, he drew, drew out while telling me that I was doing it too. You know, I, I don't think I actually was, but he said, let's draw this out together. Okay. So you say that the, the cabin should be nine feet wide and 12 feet long. All right. Where will the bunks be? We put them in there and we took step by step by step on this thin yellow paper to render finally a, a drawing of the of the cabin. And then he said, well, how much lumber are we going to need? I said, well, how do we figure that out? He said, well, here's the dimensions that lumber comes. So how many boards are we going to need? So we sat there and we calculated out how many boards, how many nails, how many everything. So that I got to see as a child that you could get an idea and have no thing there for it except your idea. Draw it, plan it, order materials. And then we went and we built it. We 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 stole some we stole some some pieces of um, uh, old telephone pole that were lying along the highway near 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 the property. We dug holes for them. We sunk them into the grounds. When I say we, I mean of course it's my father doing this. I'm eight years old at the time, but at the same time, I, to me, I was doing that. And then he said, you know, well, we got to level this thing. So we got we got we got strings and levels and level the you know level level the the base the base of this of this little little house and over the course of many many weekends coming up to bucks county from philadelphia we built the damn cabin i don't think anything in my life has been more a more important piece of me mentorship than that because i got to see how you get an idea and bring it to completion um then, in addition to that, there was a, a completely different kind of mentorship from, um, I was the Telemachus of that. Of my high school English teacher and drama coach, uh, David G. Rosenbaum, uh, a.k.a. Rosie, a.k.a. David Glenn, uh, a.k.a. D. Glenn Ross. When he would write articles for Magic Magazines, it would be under the name D. Glenn Ross. And David Glenn was his performing his performing um, name. He was a, he's a, he's a dreamer. Uh, so he, he where my father's very concrete, let's get this made. Rosenbaum was, was a dreamer, but he was a dreamer with a lot of understanding of, of drama and particularly acting. And he's he's the one who completely, absolutely, anything that I know, about movement on stage, um, you know, I mean, all the stuff that you see me do very naturally that Penn does kind of weirdly, like, you know, if I'm on stage, I will not be blocking some other piece of action on stage and Penn will be standing like this, you know, but he didn't have Rosie there. Rosie taught me all of these classical things. I mean, for example, let me, let me I'm going to tilt my screen down here. And I know that the, the reader's the, the the listeners can't can't see the screen, but Rosie taught me things like you know when you're going to sit down, you bring your 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 leg on stage, you bring your leg up against the chair, feel the chair in place, lower yourself to the seat of the chair, and then slide back. He taught me he taught me how to go up and down stairs on stage. He taught me really all of those things, but in addition to that, uh, he really thought about dramatic structure. 
in a way that uh, very few people do. Cer certainly people like Henning Nelms never think about real dramatic structure. They, they think about mechanical structure. They say, you know, oh, the audience will be very excited if you have 15 uh, scantily clad young girls and they all move in unison. The, Rosie was not about that. He was about the how the how the ideas uh, develop into into stories. How yeah, I mean, particularly let me think of a particular example. I'm, I I believe that most of what I always preach about cause and effect is stuff that I learned from Rosie. I, what I always preach is if you if, let's say you take a, a sponge ball and you place it in your hand and then you show your hand empty, that's not a trick. That's not a trick. That's not a trick until there's a cause. You place the sponge ball in your hand, then you take you take a wand and you strike it with a wand. Oh my goodness gracious! Oh, now it's oh, what's happened to that? Now, now, the, now the sponge ball has vanished, as opposed to just not being there. You know, there's there's a little cause and effect are really the poetry of magic, um, and where you may see that most clearly, I guess, is in my my shadow my shadow trick, where you know by by cutting a shadow. The real, the real object withers and dies, and he, he, when we when we see magic that doesn't have causality, even doesn't have a, a, the tiniest touch of causality, um, we don't feel about it the same way that we feel about other stuff, other 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 really good magic. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that Rosie taught me. Um, so, th those are my two principal mentors. I have, I have. There's there's one other that I think never knew he was a mentor and never thought it was, never considered the possibility that it was connected with magic, and that is um, Peter Westergaard, who was my uh, my college music theory teacher, and Peter Westergaard had a whole way of analyzing the the line of a melody that allowed you to understand what the what the listener was expecting at any given moment. And then what the outcome was for the, for the listener. And in good melodies, there's always surprises in that. And all of the stuff that he taught me there has very much affected the things that I've, I've, I've thought since. Heller, may I prompt you on one thing here just a little yeah. bit more? Yeah, sure, um, sure. One time you shared with me that you had an instructor who had you break down a section of Shakespeare. And the drill was to, in every line, think what would the intelligent and sensitive reader be thinking right now? Yeah, that that was um, uh, uh, John Moore, my um, li literature teacher at Amherst College, and John Moore. That it's it, it is very striking that John Moore and and the, and the music the music teacher were both on the same page in some ways. Uh, John John Moore did a wonderful assignment in 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 the in the Odyssey. There's a moment where. Um, Odysseus is like a ragged be beggar looking guy, but he's back in his own house and his own house is being abused by all of these unpleasant uh, people who are trying to marry Odysseus's wife. And he's there and he's going to kill them all. And we know he's going to kill them all. And there's a, uh, the, 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 the setup is, Whoever can thread a bow and shoot an arrow through a whole bunch of axe handles is going to get to marry um, Odysseus's wife. And he's there, and he's he, he's playing the beggar, and they go, okay, all right, go ahead, take up the bow, see what you can do. And then there's this breathtakingly beautiful, incredibly suspenseful 
uh, description of, uh, of of how he does it. You know how he takes takes this big bow that none of the others can bend and just bends it calmly, and picks it up like a musician, plucks the string of the bow like a musician, play, you know, about to pluck the harp. And we know that he's just going to kill them all. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know and, and and by by making us, our, the students there, go line by line and say, how do you react to this line? How do you react to that line? How do you react to that line? How do that line? How do you react to that line? As you go through that, that sequence, um, you really understand what Homer accomplished, what Homer was, was, was accomplishing in terms of building this, this lovely suspense. So yeah, John Moore, John Moore was a, that one particular exercise from John Moore did stick with me. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, you're welcome. And just one of the things, so I keep a list of in my phone of things that you've said, these sentences, and this whole time, um, everything you've talked about in the last few minutes, early up on that list, you said one time, I'm always thinking, what's next? What's next? And that sentence shows up in so many different ways. Um, and it's actually shown up in so many different ways of everything you just talked about. So as far as a teller pearl of wisdom, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Yeah, that, that, it's a it's a very it's a thing that magicians really need to do all the time. I mean, any if you're making a movie, you 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 know how people talk about movies. Oh, I knew that was coming. You know, if if, if they can say that, well, it's not much of a movie. You know, every, every every little every little next step needs to be a little surprise. Needs to be a little there needs to be a little spice there. Uh, but yes, I do. I do really. And when I was working on the red ball, that's probably the place where it's most most vis visible. But on the on the red ball, I just kept saying, "What is the audience thinking right now?" And how can we turn that? What's the what are they thinking right? Now? And how can we turn that? You know, the the big lesson that I'm taking from your past mentors is that experience with your father in the cabin, because I think what I learned from that, which is something I've learned from my own experience in making low-budget feature-length movies, which are big, long, seemingly endless processes, is he was teaching you to get to an end. You need to go through and figure out all the steps and that it isn't a fast process. And if it is a fast process, it's probably not going to be correct. You have to have the willingness to take all those steps. And that clearly shows up in your work where you will take years to perfect something and that was ingrained from you as an eight-year-old that there's a process and you're going to follow the process. Yep. And, and at the same time, of course, I'm I'm an impatient jerk. You know, <laughs> all, all, all the time. I yeah. I oh yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's put it on the stage. Well, you know, it'll be terrible. But but sometimes the way to deal with that is just to say this this is a great idea. I, I don't want to go to all the trouble to work on it. So let's put it between two strong things in the show. Come into the come in come into the not so good idea out of a strong thing and go mm -hmm. out into a strong thing and then let there be a weak place there that you can fix and maybe the urgency of the audience not liking it will make you fix it faster. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's something in the show right now that's exactly like that. Well, I think Michael, a little bit of what you did when you performed twice at Sunday Night Magic was you you did stuff and then you tested something in between to try it out on an audience and I think that was it's both smart and brave to do that sort of thing. But how else are you going to do it unless you put it on its feet in some form? In, in a certain way, you're not really testing it on the audience. Uh, you know, I, I think about the, 
the test screenings that they do of movies uh, where they'll they'll show the movie. I, I've been involved in a number of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll show it to, to, to the to the audience and then they'll have the audience fill out little cards that say, I like this. I didn't like that. What my experience of that is tear those cards up. But remember what it was like to sit in the room with them, because yep. you will feel what's really going on in the room uh, from 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 just from just being there. That's really all you need. So, Michael, you and I talked earlier about our mutual friend, Noah Sony. Uh, And when Noah was on a couple of years ago, he didn't specifically call you a mentor, but he gave you great credit because you gave him the one thing he needed in his life at that time, which was stage time. And he developed so much faster, I think, because you were able to give him that thing that he needed that he just wasn't finding anywhere else. So that's a form of mentorship, don't you think? Oh yes, and 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 if he if he were to think of it in that way, I would be completely honored. Um, Noah is, in, in if there's one analog in the way that Teller and I have interacted in that uh, friendship slash mentorship way, if I have an analog for me, that would be my friend um, Noah. Yeah, uh, and again, you know, in the same way that that my time with Teller came out of of just the way that I guess Buckminster Fuller said, uh, you know the critical path you just your life rides the knife's edge and it is what it is um you know he and i became friends in a very nonsensical manner it just fell together and and when when you meet somebody that that you enjoy it works out really well knowing that editing is a possibility uh it's just remarkable to listen to teller talk and then uh again he has said things like true precision develops over time and there, I will tell a quick story. I was very lucky enough to spend a little bit of time backstage in an environment where there wasn't anybody. I was the only one who wasn't a part of the immediate team, and the team was smaller than normal based on where we were. And I had just seen the show, and I was lucky enough to be back there waiting my time to to go grab something to eat. And I knew what the set list was that night. And as somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about their material for my own, just my trying to understand and think about it, dissect it myself. There was, there was nothing in the show that was uh, as often as they perform, nothing that was what could be called new. Um, There was stuff that was new ish, but as far as pure number of reps, everything that I had sent seen that night had already gone on stage under live fire a lot. And and, and I got the sense and the feel, you could just see it happen. This was something that happened every single night, which was each member of the team took their time checking in with Teller, checking in with Penn, and they did notes. And and it, it astounded me because I know what they just did that night. And they weren't just doing notes on the new stuff. They were doing notes that I have known to be in their career for as long as I've known them. And that was jaw-dropping to watch I don't know how to say it. I mean, you know, like we all, we all try to get better. We all try to reflect on what we've done, but it was just another level of, of what they, what they do as far as their attention to always what's, how does this get better? How can we change this? It was, it was amazing. We're, we're so, we're so lucky to have the, the crew that we have. I mean, many of them have been with us 20 or 30 years now, but some of them came in when they were 17 or 18 and they, they know that, I don't look one of the one of the luxuries of my life right now is I do not set or check a prop. Not one. I do not set or check a prop. My expert team 
sets and checks the props. If there's something missing or wrong, they will they will know it with more pain than I could ever inflict on them because they're 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 so conscientious about that. Um, and that's a that's 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 a great luxury. I mean, I, I think about um, Houdini and Jim. What was Jim? His Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. You know, they they just finding finding the right people to be your colleagues in this is amazing. And sometimes they also can they can start out being okay and then suddenly become great. Well, they can get bad too. But uh, several of our team this this year I've noticed have gotten have gone from very good to oh my goodness you're my you're you're my collaborator you're not my my servant mm-hmm. really good and, and so can i just ask a question about that process because i i do get notes uh when i perform um but i i one time i saw a, a guest speaker at a conference i was at uh who um flew with the blue eagles and he said after every um, flight performance by the Blue Eagles, um, there is a, a commander, obviously, who's in charge of that particular show. But when it's over, they all go into a room and their ranks come off. And anybody in that room who was part of that team can speak candidly and honestly in an effort to propel the whole thing to the next level. And no one's going to take offense and no one's going to say, how dare you? Or who do you think you are to give me a note? Is it is it that kind of a process? Tell yeah, me? it is. And particularly our, our rehearsals, you, you know, before we really learned how to how to how to use our, our crew, our rehearsals were somewhat compartmentalized. Now our rehearsals really are. Uh, OK, what are we going to do next? And so and so over here says, you know, uh, what if you did it squatting? You know, it's just every single person is is absolutely at liberty to uh, to add to to add a add a, a suggestion, ask a question, uh, uh, or any such thing. Um, you know, some some of the some of the team has become unbelievably great at this, and some of the team is is just you know one of our more recent um, prop people. You know, right now she's just she sort of mostly looks on and does what she's told. But the ones who've been around for a while. Man, they they really will say, well, I don't think that's going to be convincing. You know that that sucks. You know you you, you got to do something to avoid this. You know, and, and um, there's a, there's a lot of that. I'll tell you, and and it's not that we always take that suggestion, but it's that 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 suggestion will 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 lead to an answer. So yes, it's it, it, getting people with whom you are comfortable collaborating. Um, and who are very observant and who are very meticulous and are willing to do a lot of work. That's that's a it's a great it's a great thing. And I also, you know, having not at your level, but having been, it's difficult sometimes as the performer to take uh, a suggestion or a note from somebody that isn't directly, let's say in charge or above you, a director, for instance, it's difficult for me uh, as a performer. So I think that speaks to both you and Penn. If you have this sort of, I'm listening to everybody in order to uh, give the audience the the best experience that, that we can give them, I'm going to listen to everybody and I'm not going to be uh, the performer and you're going to be the 
the lackey or the uh, the stagehand uh we're collaborators that's a great word and not a word that's tossed around a lot it's you know we have we also we have we have also matt donnelly who's hanging around with us a lot lately and who's one he's started off as a stand-up comedian and then like two or three years ago he decided he was going to learn magic and took magic, learned one trick from Johnny Thompson, one trick from me, one trick from Penn, one trick from this. He's now a professional magician. And Matt Donnelly is a really funny guy. And so uh, when we're going through things, Matt will just come in and he'll say, how about this? Most, mostly it's lines with Penn, but he'll also say, you know, at this, you, you need somebody to come up here on stage and do this. He's, he's very, very good. So yeah, find, finding people to collaborate with that, that are that are helpful is great. Also, I mean, if you can be lucky enough to find to find a real director, um, uh, I forget the name of the, the director we used the last time we were on Broadway, but he was great. Uh, he he was just he knew exactly how to address things like is this is this is there too much talk here? How do you how where how do you how do you adjust that? You know how do you pick out what's essential? Which joke should you throw out? You know. Uh, if, if you can find somebody with that with that level of taste, that, that's so helpful. I mean, and in a way, that's kind of mentorship too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a director currently for your show? We do not. That, yeah. The closest oh, we no. come right now is Matt. Matt will come in every now and then, and he'll just do notes on the show, and uh, and he'll he'll say um, uh, the the uh, uh, the 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 really messy bit that we're working on right now is is for years and years. People have always said, "Do you guys ever switch roles?" So we have we have a bit called Teller and Pen, in which I do the pen part. Uh, <laughs> my name is Pen Gillette, and this is my partner Teller. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and and we did the first night. We did it. It was perfectly awful, but we followed <laughs> it with something better. And then Matt came in and worked with us for a while. And night by night by night, it's getting better and better. Uh, and this, so uh, then Matt Matt's very helpful in that. Well, speaking of Penn, we'll make it quick. But because Jim is with us, Jim has been the feast master at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival for thirty plus years, ah. and and you and Penn met there. And uh, we're just wondering what memories you have of that early experience with Penn and of uh, wandering the dusty streets in in uh, Shakopee. Is it Shakopee? Wherever Shakopee. it is out there, yeah, Shakopee, absolutely. Yeah. We 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 mention that we mention Shakopee every night during the show. Do and you? We do, and we have we have pictures of the two of us in in our Renaissance Festival costumes uh, that, that 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 go up and then always get a good howling laugh from the audience. Uh, I, I didn't meet Penn there. Uh, that was the first that was the first gig that we that we that we did together. I had met Penn about a year before that uh, at. Uh, I think in connection with our third partner, Weir Chrisimer, uh, who was doing his Otmar Sheck Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual and Disgusting Music, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, my recollections of the Renaissance Festival. Well, it, it, that was the that was really the first place that I did uh, that I was that I was earning my living doing um, doing magic. Um, Jeff Siegel was in charge in those days. And he was a he was a clown college friend of Penn's, and um, we came out and we looked at the place and we immediately said, "Well, we're not camping out for crying out loud," because everybody else was like, you know, hippies camping in tents and smoking a lot of pot. So we found ourselves a nice motel not too far away, uh, 
And uh, what else do I remember? I remember um, mosquitoes, plentiful mosquitoes. <laughs> I remember bagpipers who whose who's, um, goal in life, I believe, is to disrupt the shows of somebody who might be working silently by <laughs> walking directly through my, 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 my crowd while I'm trying to do the tip at the end of the show. Wow. With bagpipes out full. Uh, there was some good sex there. Uh, oh. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, oh yes. I, I, what do I remember? I remember steak on a steak. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that that's a fine, fine dish. A fine piece of steak marinated in Italian dressing, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Some of that we've kept. We kept the mosquitoes, for instance, uh -huh. and the bagpipers. <laughs> uh, a lot of the other stuff is gone now, as are you. But we certainly. Um, take a lot of joy and pride in the fact that Penn and Teller uh, joined forces at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. Yeah. We take a lot of, um, uh, a lot of pride and joy in that, that, that you guys have achieved what you achieved, but you started where we started. It's, you know, what's great about it is the same thing that's great about street performance, which is that you get to do the show over and over again during the day. And so you start to get that flight time. You know, I, I I can't tell you how many times I've swallowed needles, but I'm sure it's in the tens of thousands at this point. And many of those thousands were at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. I, I my 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 level of authenticity might not have been quite so high, uh, since I, I did use a, a flashlight in a dentist's mirror, which I don't believe were very popular in in the in the Renaissance Renaissance England. No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Penn and I did the first show that we did together was in the headlight was was after hours for the for the people who were attending the who were, were working at the show. And it was a show that we did uh, by the by the light of a couple of parked cars with their headlights on. Good God, that's fantastic, fantastic stuff for me. Uh, a really so great to spend time with both of you. Tell her I'm honored uh, to have you on the program, Michael. Always a joy to uh, get a chance to spend a few minutes with you. And uh, congratulations to both of you on this uh, mentor. What's the other guy's name, Teller? Telemachus. 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 The relationship that you have uh, uh, built for each other. You know, the, the, the key to defining success for me is when you are earning your living, that is enough to pay for the food and the apartment and the clothes, doing what you want, the game is over. You've won. Yep. Doing what you want. The game is over. I think that sort of echoes something that uh, comedian Larry Miller said. Very similar. You know, if this is what you got going in your life, game over. You've won. And, yeah. You uh, know, for me as a, a freelance guy, all of my professional life, never having a sort of uh, quote unquote real job uh that phrase of his when you're earning a living paying for the food and the rent or the and your clothes doing what you want the game is over you won uh it literally made me tear up because it's uh we uh, performers put a different uh set of criteria on their lives than than lay people do you know mm -hmm. and so uh my 
friends from high school and college are uh, retiring now with piles of money and uh, driving Mercedes Benz. And, you know, and I'm not doing that. Uh, I, my criteria for success uh, is different and yep. I'm not ready to retire. I don't want to retire. And, I, and frankly, I couldn't retire, but I don't want to, I, I want to keep working. But that phrase, Hey, if you're, if you're paying your bills, doing what you want to do, you've won. The game is over. It's still, gives me goosebumps because that's a way of looking at my life or the life of a performer that only another performer could say that. And if it's somebody as advanced in their career as Teller is, uh, that carries a lot of weight with me personally, but God, what an interview that's, there was so much in there. There's so much, there's so many different things we could dwell on. Um, first, help me out with this telemachus. Telemachus. How about that? I mean, we, you know, I'll be honest with you, John, you're about five times as smart as I am. So when you get rolled back in the first sentence of the very first sentence, I thought this is going south. I took some joy in that because you're very quickly. I hadn't even finished the introduction, but that was, that made it fun. And that's, you know, it really was. It set the perfect tone too, didn't it? It really did. Yeah, it really, really did. I mean, uh, he he sort of pushed back on the idea of him being a good teacher. He said, I wasn't a very good Latin teacher. Um, I think he's an excellent teacher. And I, his I, willingness to just go, hang on, let's stop. Let's fix that. And then we'll move on uh, yeah. was really fun. And, and, you know, the other thing that uh, my takeaway, because while you're while we're doing the interview, it's going so fast in real time that. I often don't have a takeaway because I'm I'm in the middle of it. But then when I listen back to the interview in, in preparation for this, I always hear things that I go, oh, my gosh, and write them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things he said that I really did not hear in real time was the discussion about uh, how to take information and hold it back until the proper moment and then release it to the audience and how movies and music always have surprises and if they don't they maybe should mm-hmm. and so uh, that idea is, uh, is has just been ricocheting around my head how do i take the stuff that i'm doing now and release the information in a way that will be more impactful for the audience which is essentially what it should and always will be about for me how do i make their experience better and that's a really interesting way to think about it. And yeah, I've never thought about it that way. It reminded me of something Tom Stoppard said, which was, he's talking about plays, but I think it's any kind of storytelling or narrative. He said, a, a play is an information delivery machine. Mm. And you just have to set the machine so it's it's giving the right information at the right time. And if it's done properly, the release of a bit of information will make an audience laugh or gasp or cry. Um, there's a moment in his play Arcadia where it is revealed at exactly the right time. The, the play jumps back and forth between two different eras. You find out that one of the characters, how they die and when they die. And that information could have been set up front, uh, but it would have had no impact. But he finds just the right place to slide that in. And I think that's what Teller's talking about is tearing apart the structure of the story and going, OK, what do they know now? What do they know now? What do, mm. Where am I ahead of them? 
where are they ahead of me? Right. And um, it's it's an intellectual pursuit that uh, I think bears fruit when you're looking at how am I positioning this story? What am I going to tell them at what point? Yeah, uh, it's just a fascinating way of thinking about everything uh, that you do in front of an audience. How can I make this more impactful mm -hmm. by giving them information in a way that isn't just sort of a download? Here right. it is, bah. Uh, right. holding back stuff so that it, it at the proper moment you can get a reaction that you wouldn't have got, like you say, if they just told us up front yeah. that character died this way at this time. Um, yeah, it's just f fascinating to me how a professional at his level mm -hmm. functions as opposed to people maybe not at his level who are unwilling to do the things that he is doing, which is I'm going to take notes from anybody. I want this, I want the audience experience to be as good as it can be. And, and somebody may give me a way to make this 10% better, 5% better. That's valuable. And, yeah. and so I, I really, I really applaud that sort of level of uh, collaboration, which mm -hmm. is a word that he used that I, I, you know, more collaboration is always better, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, there was we could we're not going to rehash the entire interview because no. there's just so much there. But I was really touched at his reaction to finding out how long you've been at the Renaissance Festival, and that's where they started performing. And that was a really sweet moment when he talked about that it was the very first place that he earned his living doing magic. Yeah, isn't that? Uh, and we do take uh, a, a lot of joy, as I said in the interview. Uh, over the fact that Penn and Teller started performing together at our festival. Yeah. I did not know that they did it after hours for participants in the light of two parked cars with their headlights on, which I think at that point would have been the only way. Now there's there are other ways to light things out there. But in the, those formative days, uh, that may have been the only way for people to be able to see them. So pretty darn cool. Uh, very, very cool. So Michael mentioned that he gave Teller a uh, a gift that got Teller's attention along with a letter. Uh, if you go check out our show notes, uh, Michael Callahan was nice enough to record with me a little video uh, walking us through what that piece was, and you'll get a chance to look at it and see what it is. Well, I want to uh, see it. Well, go to the show notes and click on that video on YouTube. It's on our YouTube channel, and you'll get a sense of that. So anyway, after listening to Teller, anything else on this show is going to feel like a letdown. However, we do have an Eli Mark story to listen to, and it does sort of, in a way, relate to what Teller said about critics and criticism. Jim, have you ever received a one-star review? I have. I, my, I, no. I, yes, probably. But thousands of times, I guess, is the answer. Uh, but, but I never, uh, I don't see them. I don't see the one-star reviews. I don't see... Any of our reviews, I should actually, are there reviews of stuff well, somewhere that I should go look at? There are reviews of this podcast, which have been very nice. Uh, I imagine that somewhere on Yelp or something, you'd have, you know, two big shows that run at the Renaissance Festival. You may have reviews there. It's probably better you're not looking at them because it's yeah, probably it, better because, it you know, it is unnerving as a as a performer. You know, my intention always will be to give the audience 150% of whatever it is I got. 
and I always want to make sure that I, I have a lot so that I can give them 150%. And sometimes even if you give 150% and you have a lot to offer, you know, not everybody likes popcorn and there's just no, yep. you what, you don't like popcorn? How, how can that be? Well, uh, I would say uh, that's the deal. Sometimes you, you, you are not going to connect with every single person. And, and the weird thing about being a performer and probably being an author too, John, I would guess is that I get a lot of, people saying nice things to me. Mm -hmm. I don't remember those. You only remember Somebody that. says one thing that isn't particularly flattering. It's all I can think about. Or yeah. one thing goes wrong in a show. Yeah. It's all I can think about. And yeah. I was my, you know, my idol, uh, Bruce Springsteen, one of my idols, Bruce Springsteen said essentially the same thing in an interview. Uh, you know, we can do a three and a half hour show and it rocks the house. There's one moment or one note of one song that isn't exactly the way I want it. What do I think about in the hotel room? I think about that. I don't think about how well everything went. I think about the one thing that I wish didn't go that. And the next night I fix that. And then there's another problem and I got to fix that. It's interesting to me that that is a universal it is uh, uh, quality for performers is we don't hear the good stuff. All we hear is the negative stuff. And it, it's a little bit like a crucifixion, uh, self-imposed crucifixion. I'm pounding my own nails. Uh, and and I, it's nice that other uh, entertainers share that so that I don't feel like, oh, I'm an idiot. Uh, no, these are really talented people saying, yeah, I agonize over the stuff that didn't go the way I wanted it to. So well, with, one that, star review, probably. with that background, uh, let's just listen in as uh, Eli deals with his own one star review. <laughs> Bumbling? What do they mean by bumbling? This produced a weary sigh from Uncle Harry. Remember when I told you never to read your reviews? This is why. I wasn't reading my reviews, I lied. I was just checking my Yelp rating. I'm a business person. I run a business. It behooves me to have a general idea of how my work is being perceived by the public. In my day, we just waited to be booked again, Harry grumbled. If you got referrals and repeat bookings, you knew your act was working. If not, you changed your act or got out of the business. Well, times have changed, I sputtered, once again scanning the online comments section, looking for anything else less than five stars. Apparently, and not for the better, it seems. It was a rainy Saturday afternoon, and for once, both Harry and I were working the counter at Chicago Magic. There had been something akin to a rare rush that morning, with upwards of six people in the store at the same time. But since lunch, we'd had only each other for company, which was why I had turned to my laptop and done a quick search of my name to see what the interwebs were saying about me. It was a quick search. My presence online is not what you would call robust. I have a Facebook page, of course, and a Twitter and Instagram account, but that's about it. You won't find me on Reddit or TikTok or Snapchat or Pinterest or whatever the new blah, blah, blah might be. 
I think I might have a LinkedIn account, but if I do, I imagine it's covered in dust and cobwebs by now. I'm not the only Eli Marks out there, but if you add the word magic, it does help to limit the Google results to a more reasonable number, which is what I had done and immediately discovered the less-than-positive Yelp review. This bumbling performer attempted to entertain us, but his magic and his patter fell far short of even your standard birthday party magician, was how it began, and it was all downhill from there. I took immediate umbrage, if that's the right word, and I'm pretty sure it was, at the unnecessary slam at birthday party magicians. Some of my best friends are birthday party magicians. I've walked a mile in their shoes, and trust me, it's no picnic. I quickly scanned the other reviews, which mercifully were all five-star. But I had an overall average of 4.5, which I suspected was due to that one-star review, which was currently stuck in my craw. It was short but brutal. I read it again just to see if I'd misread the tone the first time around. I had not. After the opening salvo, it continued in the same mean vein. The tricks seemed tired, as did the magician. I watched for about five minutes and then went in search of something more interesting, like maybe an old phone book to scan through. I certainly don't need to see another magician in this lifetime, that's for sure. Ouch! That well-placed exhortation came from Harry, who had sidled up alongside me. He was peering down at my computer screen. Ouch indeed, I agreed. Why is it that people will see an untalented singer and not walk away from it saying, I'm never listening to music again, Harry pondered as he wandered away from the laptop, or see an unfunny comedian and swear off comedy, and yet, if they're subjected to one poor magic performance, that's it for magic as far as they're concerned. He didn't see a poor magic performance, I sputtered through gritted teeth. All it takes is one bad apple and they write off an entire wing of the entertainment industry. It was not a bad apple. It was a good apple, as evidenced by all the five-star reviews. I gestured unnecessarily at the screen because Harry was already halfway across the small store. People are funny, that's for sure, he concluded as he returned to his crossword puzzle. You just never know about them, do you? That last bit was rhetorical, but I wouldn't have provided an answer even if I had one. Instead, I had clicked on the name of the one-star reviewer and started a new search. Who was this person, and what would drive them to offer up such a mean-spirited assessment? In a matter of moments, I had the full name and was reading all about the unhappy critic on his Facebook page. He appeared to be a barista at a small coffee shop across town. I had never been there, but I knew where it was and how to get there. There's no time like the present, I decided, as I pulled on my windbreaker and shut my laptop. Turnabout is fair play, as Peter Marshall used to say all the time on the Hollywood Squares. I didn't fully understand it then and didn't really get it now, but it felt appropriate for the moment. Turnabout is fair play indeed. It was time for this negative fellow, Billy Finch, to perhaps be on the receiving end of a one-star review of his own.
The coffee shop was called Joe's Cuppa, and it was located in a sort of no-man's land in Minneapolis. Not quite in the trendy uptown neighborhood, not really in the industrial sector to the east, just barely on the edge of a residential section. It was hard to tell if the small building's worn facade was by design or just persistent and ongoing negligence. I spotted Billy immediately when I came in. He was behind the counter, ringing up a coffee order while chatting with another employee. He matched his Facebook profile photo, although his wimpy goatee had filled out a bit since the picture had been taken. He still sported a man bun, which was perched precariously atop his head. He was dressed in a faded plaid shirt with the sleeves tightly rolled up beyond the elbows of his skinny, tattoo-laden arms. The place wasn't huge, nor was it crowded at the moment. A handful of small tables were scattered around the room, and only about a quarter of them were occupied. Somewhere, a speaker was pumping out some whiny indie rock classic, but by the time it reached my ears, it was just white noise. I stepped up to the counter when the previous customer walked away, waiting for Billy to spot me as the magician who ruined his otherwise strong love of magic. No such glimmer of recognition was forthcoming. He glanced up without really looking at me. What can I get you? I'm not a coffee shop sort of guy, and so I didn't have a standard order ready on the tip of my tongue. I was going to order a simple black coffee, but realized if I was going to review Billy's alleged barista skills, I needed to give him something a tad more challenging. I had vaguely overheard the previous order, so I parroted the same phrasing the other customer had spouted as I scanned the menu board for unique options of my own. Yeah, give me a cinnamon-infused, free-range, medium pumpkin spice latte. No foam, half soy, half almond, I said as offhandedly as I could manage. Sure thing, Billy said flatly. He punched numbers into the small high-tech cash register as he shouted over his shoulder, A number four, please! He took my name in the same disinterested manner, and I swiped my credit card, bringing our short exchange to an uneventful and hasty conclusion. I found a seat at a nearby table and popped open my laptop as I waited for Billy to mispronounce my name when my order was ready. Past experience had proven he had no shortage of options. Ellie was the most common, followed by Allie, although I'd heard variations as creative as Early, Nelly, and even Alphonse. While the order was being prepared, I made note of Billy's behavior with his co-worker and with the next customer. I realized that my plan, such as it was, had required that he have just this sort of public-facing job. There was no way I could write a review of Billy's job performance if he was a faceless drone in some bland cubicle maze in an insurance company or similar organization. I had lucked out because his every move was on display for me to scrutinize and critique. I was so caught up in the type of wordplay I could employ in my scathing review that I missed it the first time he called out my name. It didn't help that he pronounced it properly. I had really been on alert for a new, as yet unheard, mispronunciation. 
Rather than yell it out again to the nearly empty coffee shop, he instead stepped around the counter, placed the cup on the table in front of me. He had even brought a couple of napkins. Here you go, he said. Careful, it's hot. Then he was gone, on his way to serve the next customer before I could begin to sputter a response. Recognizing I'd have to stretch the truth if I were to criticize the interaction portion of my visit, I instead turned to surveying the product Billy had put in front of me. Here was a place where I could really bring the knives out and mirror the hatchet job he had given my performance. The only problem was, it was actually pretty tasty. The latte was just as hot as he had predicted, so I sipped carefully. I've never really gotten on the pumpkin spice bandwagon with any level of enthusiasm, and I was expecting an overwhelming flood of conflicting tastes, the cinnamon fighting the pumpkin spice while the almond and soy milk battled it out in the background. Instead, I found a rich and smooth concoction that merely hinted at the strong flavors, letting everything swirl together in a new taste sensation. I made a mental note to remember this order for those rare occasions I found myself in a coffee shop. The thought of writing notes made me turn to my laptop, where I'd opened a blank document in anticipation of my forthcoming review. So far, I'd only jotted down the name of the coffee shop and that a barista named Billy had been my server. I had anticipated listing a long string of faults and failings with the idea of winnowing them down to a pithy assessment that would likely go viral due to its sharply cutting wit. I stared at the nearly blank page for several moments and then took another sip of my latte. I mentally recapped the entire process from the moment I had walked into the shop, searching for any flubs or flaws I might have experienced. Nothing was coming to mind, so I took another sip of the latte, deciding I might in fact embrace the pumpkin spice revolution if all its byproducts were as pleasing as this one. Deciding another tactic was required, I opened the original review and clicked on Billy's avatar to scan through his other critiques, thinking I might find an end to my own review by reading his past missives. As I read his long list of assessments, I occasionally glanced up to see how he, and by extension, his customers, were faring. There'd been a steady stream of new coffee drinkers since I'd first come in. Billy and his sole co-worker were handling them all with what appeared to be a well-orchestrated process. Coffee orders were placed, pastries requested, even bags of custom ground coffee were delivered with practiced efficiency. While his encounters with his customers were not what I would call warm, it didn't appear that anyone in the place had anything to complain about. I turned my attention back to his previous reviews, and that's where I got to see the other side of Billy Finch. It quickly became apparent my magic performance was not the outlier in his worldview. He literally didn't like anything. A popular local restaurant was awarded a one-star review, he wrote, because this system doesn't allow for negative numbers. If it did, I'd be using a very large negative number indeed. A nearby co-op 
received its own one-star review for employees who are as bitter as their supposedly organic produce. A local dentist was savaged for outdated magazines in the lobby, while a theater production was criticized for not only pandering, but also for its sightlines, its supposed lack of online resources, and its unreliable airflow. Whatever that meant. Repair shops, gas stations, movie theaters, bars, pet groomers, hardware stores. It appeared there was no category where Billy could find any product or service which met his high standards. I was surprised he didn't slam his own place of employment, but I suppose even a certified grouse such as Billy had to draw a line somewhere. I looked up from this steady stream of negativity and watched him work for a few more minutes. While he was clearly good at his job, he didn't appear to be taking any pleasure in it. Perhaps he was one of those people who were unable to find even a glimmer of joy in the world. I suddenly felt sad about Billy Finch and his unfortunate worldview. The idea of writing a review of this depressed creature no longer held any interest for me. So I closed the document without saving it and slid my computer into my satchel. I downed the rest of my latte, recognizing it as the sole bright spot in this misguided adventure. As I headed out of the small coffee shop, I turned to give Billy Finch one last look. His back was to me as he poured another in a series of complicated coffee orders. His shoulders were hunched and his head was down, his posture suggesting the world was once again pressing down hard on his slim, unhappy frame. What I didn't realize at that moment was the next time his name would appear online, it would not be as the byline for another of his angry one-star reviews. It would be for his obituary. Magicians are often lumped in with other oddball performers, jugglers, clowns, fire-eaters, under the general all-purpose manner of variety performers. One of my favorite subcategories from that decidedly mixed group are the ventriloquists. And due to my Uncle Harry's position in the entertainment community, I've had the pleasure of meeting my share of top-notch ventriloquists over the years. But if I'm going to be honest, my favorite ventriloquism team are two occasional visitors to our magic shop from the Minneapolis Police Homicide Division, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton and his partner, Homicide Detective Miles Wright. Their act is simplicity itself. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, who always nearly bangs his head on the doorway when he enters, stands silently once inside the door. His smaller and more verbal partner, trapped behind this looming golem, then offers an unseen greeting of some sort to get the ball rolling. For example, on this visit, it was, Morning, Marks. You got a minute? The effect is of a giant, grim puppet staring down at me with a detached voice coming from somewhere behind the hulking creature. The first couple of times it happened, I found it deeply unnerving, but now kind of come to look forward to it. I'm not saying they'd make it past the audition round on America's Got Talent, 
but it amuses me to no end. Ah, yes, I said, not even attempting to soften my grin. The comedy stylings of Hutton and Wright. It's a joke I've used before, but what makes it truly interesting is that it's the only time I ever referred to the large man by anything but his full name and title. Although he's actually a pretty sharp detective, I'm not sure he's ever noticed this small detail. Here's the thing. Many divorced men don't have to deal on a frequent basis with their ex-wife's new husband. Sadly, I'm one of the few who does. Our relationship has always been, at best, frosty. We've kept things cordial, but I sincerely doubt it will ever rise to anything you might call warm. Because of this coolness between us, and probably also due to homicide detective Fred Hutton's natural taciturn disposition, his partner generally did most of the talking in our encounters, which Miles Wright attempted to do just as soon as he was able to push his way into the store. How's business? Wright said sarcastically as he glanced around the empty magic shop. Having a fire sale? No, but sadly we're out of joy buzzers and fake vomit, I said, so I'm afraid you'll have to look elsewhere for your supplies. You're a funny man. There is a debate on that, I said quietly. What can I do for you? We're investigating a recent murder. Wright said as he plopped a bulky police-issue laptop computer on the counter between us. A fellow got himself shot coming home from work earlier this week. A mugging? I suggested. Wright shook his head. If it was, it wasn't a particularly successful one. Victim's wallet was untouched, as was his fancy phone and a few contraband substances we found on his person. He opened the computer and skillfully used the trackpad to open a folder and then scanned through some files. It happened by the back door to his apartment building about an hour after he'd left work. No CCTV at the apartment, but we did get the video files from his place of employment. So we scanned through the events of the day he got shot, and who do we find seated at one of the tables? And not just sitting there, but clearly watching the victim's every move. He spun the laptop around and gestured toward the image on the screen, but I already had a pretty good idea what I'd see. It was a high-angle, black-and-white shot of the room. There I was, seated at a table at Joe's Cuppa, practically staring at the barista as he worked. How do you know Billy Finch? These were the first words out of homicide detective Fred Hutton's mouth since they'd walked in. And why did you spend nearly an hour watching him the day he was shot? Well, obviously, I didn't know he was going to be shot while I was there, I began, but Wright cut me off. That's not obvious at all. So why were you there? And what was your interest in the victim? I suppose I could have hemmed and hawed, but I found that the truth, while occasionally painful, is generally the shortest distance between two points. Plus, I wasn't keen on the idea of being a murder suspect one second longer than necessary. So I moved down the counter to where my laptop was positioned and did some quick swiping and clicking of my own. The two men followed me. By the time they arrived, I had found the review. I spun the laptop around so they could see the screen. I got a one-star review, a rare 
one-star review, I might add, and I decided to check the guy out. Maybe even write a mean-spirited review of my own. Isn't that a bit? I don't know, Wright said, clearly struggling to find the right word. Petty? It's probably the definition of petty, I agreed. Look, I'm not proud of it, but that's the truth. I went into the shop to see if he was bad at his job so I could write about it online. The way he wrote about how you're bad at your job. Homicide detective Fred Hutton's face registered the slightest smile as he said this. I'm not bad at my job, I snapped. My attempt to take any defensiveness out of my tone had failed miserably. And as it turns out, he's not so bad at his job either. Or at least he was. In an effort to take the focus off my petty nature, I moved back down the counter to their laptop, which was still running the video from the coffee shop. So, do you have any leads? Homicide detective Fred Hutton continued to scan through the review on my computer. Wright shook his head as he followed me. Nothing to write home about, but he clearly ticked somebody off. Or was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I suggested. Wright shrugged. Maybe, but it doesn't feel like that. I think he was the target. What's that on the bottom of the screen? I gestured toward text, which was scrolling in one corner of the monitor. Whatever fast talker sold this coffee shop, their CCTV system, had a nice payday on this one, Wright said with a grim chuckle. It's much more sophisticated than they needed, that's for sure. Recognizing Wright hadn't really answered my question, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton turned from his position at the other end of the counter. It's connected to the cash register, he said flatly. It monitors purchases. It's so the store can make sure that what's being rung up is actually what's being sold, Wright added. It's really designed for larger retail environments. You know, your Targets, your Walmarts. The loss prevention guys monitor all the cash registers and look for anomalies. My expression must have adequately reflected my confusion, so Wright continued. Like I heard of this one case where a cashier taped the UPC code from a pack of gum to the palm of his hand, he continued. A buddy comes up with a TV or some other big-ticket item, and the cashier appears to scan it. Everyone hears the beep and all that, but he actually ends up charging the guy for just a pack of gum, and his pal walks out with the TV but the loss prevention guys can see on the video that the customer is being charged for a pack of gum and getting a TV instead, I said. If they happen to be looking at that moment, sure, Wright said, but odds are good they might miss it. Sounds pretty foolproof. It is, unless you're a fool, homicide detective Fred Hutton said. He appeared to have finished reading Billy Finch's review and was headed down the counter toward us. A fellow may get away with that once, maybe twice, but the smart crook learns to space these things out. Yeah, but instead, most of those idiots go whole hog, like they'll let a buddy buy a cart full of electronics for the price of 20 packs of gum, Wright said, grinning at the image. That sends up a lot of red flags, and before they know it, they're out of a job, convicted of grand larceny, and rolling on the gray goose doing two and a half to five. I nodded as I looked down at the video image of the transactions taking place at Joe's Kappa. You're right, this system seems like overkill, I agreed. 
There's one born every minute, Wright said. I looked up at the two men. Their suits, though obviously different sizes, appeared to be nearly identical in every other way. I was tempted to question them further on this point, but I had a more pressing question. You guys don't actually think I had anything to do with this, do you? They stared back at me, a study in blank faces. And then, after what seemed like a long time, Wright smiled and shook his head. No, not really, he said. However, you did pop up on the video, and Fred here says the joint next door has good burgers. So we thought we killed two birds, as it were. Is it true? He lost me. Is what true? The joint next door, he said with a cock of his head. Are there burgers worth the drive from downtown? I shrugged. Well, they claim to have the world's best Juicy Lucy, but so do three other bars in town. However, they make decent fries, and if you use a little caution, their Juicy Lucy can do the trick. Caution? The cheese inside the Juicy Lucy is usually about 400 degrees Fahrenheit by the time it reaches the table, so take care with that first bite, I explained. I was glad the topic had shifted away from my potential involvement in a recent homicide to the more benign topic of the alleged superiority of the burger next door. Thanks. Wright reached for the laptop, but I put my hand on it first. Do you mind if I look at the video for a bit while you have lunch? I wasn't sure why, but there was obviously nothing else going on in the store, and so any distraction, regardless of how mundane, had a certain appeal. Sure thing, Wright said with a shrug. We'll grab it on our way back. Homicide detective Fred Hutton appeared less enamored with the concept, but he said nothing as the two men left the shop, heading toward a greasy yet satisfying lunch next door. If I was looking for a monotonous endeavor, I had found it. Sitting in the coffee shop in real time hadn't been a thrill a minute, but re-watching the action from this high, slightly fuzzy angle was near sleep-inducing. The initial fascination of observing a transaction taking place and simultaneously seeing the purchase information appearing as text in the lower corner of the screen quickly waned. It may have been because the store offered a limited supply of products and a predictable repetition quickly set in. Yet I had to admit there was an odd, appealing rhythm to the process. The semi-steady flow of customers, the quick exchanges, the coffee served, the bags of coffee delivered, the pastries distributed. Maybe it was because I was sitting in an empty magic store just a few miles away with no customers, no steady stream of transactions, no persistent tabulating of cash register receipts. Maybe I was just living vicariously, seeing what it might be like to oversee a thriving, probably profitable enterprise. Was that why I kept watching? I glanced around our small, dusty shop. It always felt like there was a light out somewhere in the room, but it wasn't readily apparent just where. The displays in the front window blocked what little sun that side of the building got, while the fluorescence over the counters offered the bare minimum of light they could without actually being off. I turned my attention back to the video of the bright, busy coffee shop, focusing my attention on Billy Finch's swift and efficient moves. 
There was no wasted motion as he glided from the register to the coffee machines to the small bakery display to the rack holding bags of coffee. He was, I had to admit, quite good at his job. And that high-tech cash register certainly helped to keep things moving. People inserted or merely touched their credit cards to a box on the counter or used their phones, and the sales popped up instantly on the screen. I glanced over at our own cash register, which would probably be considered an antique in most quarters with its hard-to-press keys and a cash drawer desperately in need of oiling. I had been in the shop the day an equipment salesman had tried to interest Uncle Harry with a newer model, similar to what they were using at Joe's Cuppa. He'd extolled the machine's ease of use, explaining that it allowed for three or four times as many sales an hour. Harry nearly laughed the poor man out of the store. I find it hard to believe, Harry said as he showed him the door, that a mere cash register is going to increase our foot traffic in any appreciable way. And if it did, then I'd get out of magic and into the cash register business. Good day, sir. The door was then closed as firmly as Harry's mind on the topic. I turned my attention back to the video playing on Wright's laptop, and I started to play a little game. Guess the purchase. Could I guess what a customer would buy based only on the way they approached the counter? I certainly couldn't hear them, and my view of them was limited to what they looked like from behind. That guy's going to get a mocha latte, I would think. Wrong. Black coffee and a croissant. That woman looks like the iced coffee type. Bingo. Iced coffee it was. This fellow is just there to buy a bag of ground coffee. Right again. While I'm estimating my overall correct guesses fell far below 50%, I celebrated the successes and let the failures recede quickly into the murky past. It's a technique that makes popular psychics successful and it worked just as well for me in this situation. And then I noticed it. But what did I notice? I scanned the video back and re-watched the purchase, which was typical in all ways but one. I watched the next purchase and the five after that, then scanned back to several earlier purchases, and then scanned ahead to the one that had caught my eye. A song from my childhood played in the distant recesses of my brain. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Marx, you were right about that first bite of the Juicy Lucy. Sadly, I'd forgotten your warning until the very moment that molten cheese hit the tip of my tongue. Never again! Miles Wright was nearly shouting this at me as he strolled back into our shop. Homicide detective Fred Hutton followed him in moments later. As usual, he was as quiet as his partner was loud. I'm guessing the look of intensity on my face as I studied the computer screen was lost on Wright, but his partner picked up on it instantly. What have you found? Homicide detective Fred Hutton said. His tone was a peculiar mix of both optimism and accusation. Let me ask this. Did Billy Finch have more money in his bank account than you might have expected? Miles Wright was suddenly all business. He sure did, he said. 
and more cash in his apartment than your typical barista should have stashed away. I'm not surprised. I turned my attention back to the video where I was re-watching the moment where the two employees closed up the shop and locked the front door. Although the video would continue to monitor the empty shop throughout the night, a quick scan had shown the place remained unoccupied until one of the employees opened it up early the next morning. Of course, that employee hadn't been Billy Finch. At that point, he'd been dead for about eight hours. It's this purchase here, at 2.37 p.m., I said, as I spun the laptop to give the two cops a better view. You can see from the readout on the screen that it's for a 12-ounce bag of whole bean dark French roast coffee, if I'm reading the abbreviations correctly. They studied the screen as, from our high-angle vantage point, Billy Finch rang up the order. The purchase information appeared on the lower right corner of the screen as Billy turned and headed into the back room. A few moments later, he returned with the small prepackaged bag of coffee, handing it to the customer along with the printed receipt. The whole thing had taken less than a minute, and then Billy Finch was on to the next customer. Wright ran a hand through his thinning hair. I don't get it, he said. What are we looking at? I spun the computer around and began to scan to another moment from the video file. My Uncle Harry has a trick he does in his act, in his cabaret show. I won't go into the details of how it works, but in order for the trick to be successful, he has to put his hands on his hips, just for a second. But if he doesn't do that, the trick won't work. I looked up from my scanning. The two men stared back at me. So, in order to make sure this particular move doesn't stand out, Harry does this really smart thing. I glanced at the screen and then back at the cops on the off chance they might have guessed what that smart thing was. Their expressions suggested they weren't getting ahead of me. What Harry does, I continued, is that up until that point in the act and several times later in the show, he puts his hands on his hips. He doesn't make any reference to it. He just does it. Consequently, the audience gets used to it. They understand it's just a habit of his. So when he has to put his hands on his hips, they don't notice anything out of the ordinary, Wright said brightly. Bingo, I agreed. However, our friend Billy Finch clearly doesn't know that trick. Here he is selling that exact same product, a 12-ounce bag of dark French roast whole beans, to a customer 10 minutes earlier. They studied the screen as Billy rang up the order, stepped over to a shelf loaded with small bags of coffee, grabbed one, and handed it to the customer along with the receipt. I scanned the video quickly forward. And here he is again, 15 minutes later, selling that same product to another customer. Once again, Billy rang up the order, grabbed a bag of coffee from the shelf behind him, and handed it to the customer along with the receipt. He does the same thing six more times before the shop closes, I said, as I hit the pause button, and five times earlier in the day. Each time, he always takes the product from the shelf behind him. However, at 2.37, he went into the back room to get the same product, homicide detective Fred Hutton said quietly. So I'm betting it wasn't actually the same product, Wright added. I nodded. I think so. It was likely some sort of exchange for a product that odds are wasn't coffee. Indeed, 
Homicide Detective Fred Hutton agreed. And the best part is, I continued as I pointed at the screen, the customer used a credit card. It's noted here, right under the product information on the screen. And if that cash register is anything like the one some guy tried to sell Uncle Harry, you'll have a complete record of the purchase, including any name and address associated with the credit card he used. Assuming it wasn't a stolen credit card, Wright grumbled. True enough, I said. I closed the computer and pushed it toward him. But you now have more than what you had when you walked in here an hour ago, plus a burned tongue and a lesson well learned. Their silence as they exited the shop suggested that, on at least one level, they agreed with me. Well, Marks, when you're right, you're right. Harry looked up from his position behind the counter as homicide detective Miles Wright shut the shop door behind him. I've been saying that about myself for years, Harry said. It's nice that the rest of you are finally starting to catch on. I think he's actually talking about me, I said as I came through the curtain, which separated the back room from the rest of the magic store. I'd been working on my laptop, and I set it on the counter in front of me. Indeed I am, Wright said. He was grinning ear to ear. I was just in the neighborhood to grab my new favorite Juicy Lucy, and I thought I'd give you the good news in person. We found the guy who shot Billy Finch. Fantastic, I said. And was it related to that oddball coffee purchase? It was indeedly do, he said. I couldn't tell if his excitement was because of the news he was delivering or his impending Juicy Lucy. Turns out our friend Mr. Finch was moving product for a local drug dealer, and he decided to branch out and start his own enterprise. To fund it, he was skimming a little off the top, literally. He was taking small portions of the product, heroin, as it turns out, with the idea of selling it with another guy. Wright leaned on the counter as he continued his explanation. What we witnessed on the video was a handoff of the product to that associate who was going to resell what they'd skimmed. Then they'd split the proceeds. Turns out, though, that word got back to the top guy, and he decided to send a message to his crew. No freelancing allowed. Well, Billy certainly got that message. Was it the credit card information that did the trick? It was, it was. The exchange at the coffee shop was to throw off any compatriots who might be watching. You know, a guy comes in, buys a bag of coffee, walks out. Who's going to think anything of that? The problem was, the fool Billy was working with used his own credit card. When we told him he was implicated in a first-degree murder case, he accepted a plea deal and spilled all the beans. And I'm not just talking coffee beans. What I don't get is this, I said as I pulled up a stool. Why leave a trail like that with a credit card? Why not just use cash for the exchange? It was all of what, 12 bucks? I asked him that very question, and you will appreciate the irony of his answer, Wright said. He said he and Billy discussed it and decided it would be more suspicious to use cash because nobody uses cash anymore. They felt it would make their little exchange stand out more, hence the credit card. He turned to Uncle Harry. It's like that hands-on-the-hip thing you do in your act, Wright said. To reinforce the concept, 
He dramatically placed his hands on his hips. Harry stared back at him blankly. Excuse me? I stepped in to assist Wright by putting my hands on my own hips. You know, I said, that hip thing you do, in your act. Harry turned to me and then back to Wright. What are you, drunk? You both look like you're about to break into a rendition of I'm a little teapot, for goodness sake. I dropped my hands and stepped over to where Harry was seated. I leaned in and whispered a few words in his ear. Once he'd heard enough, he pushed me away. Goodness, I haven't performed that trick in that way in at least 20 years, he growled. And while we're on the subject, why are you spilling my trade secrets to the laity? Concepts, not specifics, I said. Educational use only. Well, I should hope so, Harry said as he returned his attention to his crossword puzzle. Anyway, thanks for the help on this one, Wright said as he headed back toward the door. And for the tip on that juicy Lucy, I can practically taste it right now. Careful of that first bite, Wright nodded. Thanks, but I carry a constant reminder on the tip of my tongue. He made a vague gesture toward his mouth, the motion morphing into a wave as he stepped through the door. Helping out our friends in blue again, Harry said, peering at me over his glasses. Not doing anything you wouldn't do, I countered. Indeed, indeed, he muttered. And the victim he mentioned, that was the fellow who gave you the shabby review? He was indeed. Well, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but based on the little I heard of his nefarious plan, I would be hard-pressed to give it anything higher than one star. Speaking of poor notices, I said as I flipped open my laptop, I was doing a quick search and came across yet another one-star review. Eli, what have I told you about reading your bad reviews? Harry began, but I cut him off. No, this wasn't for magician Eli Marks. I found a nasty review for a magician named Harry Marks. His eyebrows shot up. What? A one-star review? For me? Nonsense. Pretty recent, too, I added as I scanned the online critique. Let me see that, Harry said as he began to climb down from his stool. But what about not reading reviews? That was a suggestion, not an edict. Now, let me see that review. Not on your life, I said with a laugh. I may not be fleet of foot, but I'm fleeter than an 80-year-old man, that's for sure. I had my laptop closed and under my arm in a jiffy. In fact, I wager I was up a full flight of stairs toward my apartment before Harry was even halfway across the store. <laughs> You know, the first book in the Eli Marks series uh, has, at the time of this recording, two one-star reviews on Amazon. No. Yes. One says, I'm going to quote, it doesn't work on my nook, so I can't read it, which to me is funny because she bought a book for her Barnes & Noble device on the Amazon Kindle store. So that's <laughs> that's not my problem. No, and the other one says, quote, spends too much time on details about magic tricks, gets boring. End quote. Okay. And that's fair. That's fine. You know, there's one audience for the books. I've always said it's uh, a guy named John who looks just like me. 
And so I write in the stuff that I like. And if you like it, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. The, the, yeah. the one thing people need to learn when they start writing books is if you think your book is for everybody, you're going to be disabused of that very quickly. You know, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but you know, I, for 20 years, I worked for our, our NHL franchise here, the Minnesota wild. Yes. Um, and when that franchise was first getting established here, they hired a brand consultant who mm-hmm. told us, Hey, we, we don't have to hockey is not for everybody. And we're not going to change that. It's it's, we don't need it to be for everybody. We need it to be for 1865 people. That's what this arena holds. Mm-hmm. If we can find 18,000, I'm sorry, 18,065 people, we've done our job we don't have to convert somebody to becoming a hockey and and so i agree with that with your premise is i'm not for everybody i'm for an audience that is essentially me and if you like me like i like me you'll probably like my stuff if you don't there there was a a a fringe show that i think went off broadway called title of show it was a very meta show about creating a show uh for the fringe and then as the show became more successful they they would add to the script because it kept changing what their experience was. It was a musical. And there was one song in it that represents my point of view on that. And the song was called, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. I'll say that again. I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than 100 people's ninth favorite thing. That's all I ever aimed for. You know, the Eli Marks niche is a niche. Come on in if you like it. If you don't, plenty of other things to go do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and hard, I, I think hard, because I I don't think anybody who's in the uh, business of creating something for mass consumption, whether it's a book, a piece of theater, a movie, uh, a, a song, whatever, I don't think anybody doesn't want it to reach everybody. That's where you start. I want Human it to nature. Everybody. Human nature. Yeah, it's 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 painful when you realize until you realize I don't need it to reach everybody. It doesn't. And that that's what the the brand consultant at the wild taught me. It's like you don't need to reach everybody. You just need to reach the people who are interested in what you've got. Yeah. And those are the people listening right now. Right. We thank you for that. And I'll just uh, give a little preview of our next episode. It's kind of a Halloween episode uh, because there's an Eli Marks Halloween story called The Death of the Black Knight. Yes. And we're going to talk to two good friends who we want to talk about freelance existence. These guys make their living with puppets. Yeah, that's that's a whole different level, I think. Uh, puppet master Gordon Smooter, who's a friend of both of ours, and ventriloquist extraordinaire and friend of the podcast, yeah. Jay Johnson, is going to join us to talk about the amazing world of puppets. And gosh dang it, it is amazing. It is. It is. It's the perfect time to talk to those two because there's a bit of uh, mention of ventriloquism in that story. So it's a nice time, but it's also... Uh, nice to get Gordon on and get Jay back. So I think think everyone's going to like that one. That'll be a fun one coming up 
uh, next episode. Until then, be wait. sure to tell your friends about us. Rate us if you want. You don't even have to leave a review. Just a little four, five, six star rating. You can, you know, hack the system, make it a six star rating if you want. Uh, that would help. But otherwise, take care of yourselves and we'll see you next episode. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at Eli Marks Mysteries. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.